0: This is Changeling the Podcast.
1: Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Greetings, true believers. What are we talking about tonight, Puka?
0: Well, I was trying to do kind of a vague Stanley impression because we are going to be talking about 10 comics and graphic novels for inspiration in Changeling the Dreaming.
1: Enough said.
0: Yeah. We should probably begin by pointing out that. There are a lot more than 10 options. These are just a selection of 10, a, a small smorgasbord, if you will. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what do you have
1: first as an inspiration?
0: Well, let me pull up my list. Also, um, just to nip this in the bud, because people brought this up on the Discord and it turned into a conversation, we will not be handling manga or web comics in this episode. I think those could probably easily be their own. So perhaps in the future we will. But for this Mm -hmm. episode, we're going to be focusing on the, I guess, traditionally understood printed comic medium. And as a medium, it's one of my favorites, but I won't turn this into a media studies lecture, at least not yet. Uh, I will start with the comic Die, written by Kieran Gillen and illustrated by Stephanie Hans, which wrapped up, uh, I think, 2021. It ran for 20 issues and... I guess I'd describe it as almost like the never-ending story part two, specifically, crossed with Dungeons and Dragons. The basic plot is that there's a group of teenagers uh, and they game together. Their one friend who's the DM creates this homebrew world for his friends. And then when they roll their dice, they disappear. Two years later, all of them reappear except for the DM and none of them we will talk about what happened. They all refuse to say where they've been. They refuse to say what happened to the one friend's arm, which is now missing. Uh, but it becomes clear that they were sucked into the world of the game and had adventures in there as the party of heroes. So 25 years later, they all receive these mysterious packages. One of the conceits is that it's like a full set of Dungeons and Dragons dice. So there's a D4, a D6, a D8, a D10, a D12, and a D20. And each one is associated with one of the homebrew character classes that each of the friends played. And of course, the Game Master got the D20. And they each receive their die in the mail. So then they all get together to say, like, what's going on here? And then they find themselves sucked back in once again. Except this time, now they're adults with kids and marriages and careers that they worry about. And even though they're legendary heroes in the game world, they see the results of what they've done and how it's changed the world over time. So I almost think of it like it's a 20-sided dreaming, you know. Each issue kind of visits different realms and shows different impacts that they had. So like villains from the past show up, different wars that they fought in have been resolved one way or another. So it's a very interesting deconstruction of role-playing games in a meta sense but then very much a drawn-into-the-dreaming narrative at another level. And Kieran Gillen, when he was writing this, because this is one of the few series where I actually bought each issue as as it came out and have the collection. So in the letters columns, he would talk about how role-playing games always kind of rubbed him a little bit the wrong way, and he wrote into the implications of of that form. So it's almost about the concept of, you know, player-character-bleed, and it's about the effects of escapism, both good and bad. One of the characters kind of lets his inner sociopath completely out to play when they enter the game world, which is bad. And then another character uh, is able to fully express their trans identity in the game. And so like, it's interesting to see how each of them uses the game for their own ends. On top of that, The art is incredibly beautiful. Like just, I can't get enough of the art. It's very attentive to color palettes. So it's not like bombastic superhero color schemes and everything. You'll just have this beautifully almost painted page. Maybe it is painted. I don't know, digitally or otherwise. And it'll be like black and white and gray and deep blue and red. And then you turn the page again and it's like gold and soft gold and brown and white and black. Like, it's just these harmonious combinations of color that really have an impact. Overall, Kieran Gillen is also very good about uh, representation and three-dimensional characters. So it really does feel like even the throwaway NPCs, if you will, that show up for a page are really deeply developed. And... There are literary connections. There's a suggestion that this fantasy world they're occupying might be one that has connections to that developed by the Bronte siblings in Victorian England for whatever reason. <laughs> so it's just all these little, all these little pieces, and it is kind of like the Deadpool of the dreaming. All of these ideas. There are, of course, straight up Tolkien allusions as well. You know, but it it all works together, and because it has that fixed 20 issue run, it was kind of meticulously plotted out in a really interesting way on top of all of that there is a tie-in role-playing game so go figure but be careful when you play it because then you might get sucked into the world anyway that's die
1: i haven't i haven't read this one but i do like that it's not called dice
0: yes yeah yeah (laughs) anyway well and (laughs) one of the really cool things i mean it's like a subtle bit i suppose but on the cover of each issue it'll be um one of the characters very exquisitely painted and the the word die, but then kind of the emblem of the series is the 20-sided solid, the acosahedron unfolded, you know, like if you were cutting it out of paper. And I believe as you advance through the series, it's like one of the cells is, I think, blacked out and it kind of moves down the figure mm-hmm. as you go, if I'm remembering correctly. So, but they do, I mean, Kieran Gillen does really cool stuff overall and i in general recommend his work as as inspiration very briefly and if we do another of these episodes i'll go deeper on this one but the wicked and the divine is another really solid one for changeling inspirations the basic premise is that every 90 years a group of 12 people the pantheon reincarnate and they're the the incarnations of various gods from around the world and they get worshipped and admired and then within two years they're all dead so <laughs> it's kind of a story of teenagers crystallizing and becoming pop stars and then knowing that they live on borrowed time. And what's more Changeling than that?
1: Mm-hmm. So yes, what's next on the agenda? Next we have one of these that not only is a good inspiration for your Changeling games, but is one of the big inspirations for Changeling the Dreaming, which being the Sandman. Yay. Uh, that was... if. Some of our maybe younger listeners. <laughs> um, Sandman first came out in 1989. It was actually a continuation of a weird superhero from the 70s that Neil Gaiman kind of took up as his, his own thing or took up as a thing. It's about, you know, one of the endless who are like eternal beings of aspects of reality, something like that. And uh, he's the same, and then you have Dream who's the same man has his own realm called the dreaming. And <laughs> it's basically the entire dream world. Sounds uh, familiar. Yeah. It ran for a long time. It's back in production to, now too. There's a Neil Gaiman's worked on a, at least season one of a Netflix series. I don't know if season two is coming back, coming out or not. I can't remember.
0: I think they're planning to to
1: do five total. So Okay. Yes, I remember there was, there's some concern over whether not to be able to do a second one. But anyway, the comic series is very long, very extensive, has so much about it. It's not just, you know, Sandman and the Dreaming and just the other Endless, which can play various roles like death and destiny and things like that, inspirational things for change. But like entire world, like it's technically in the DC universe, but really sort of created its own universe there. So many little side characters, so many bigger side characters, dream t- creatures from the dream and getting into the real world, and just strange things in the real world and how they interact with things. And yeah, it's uh, not quite a must read, but you will not. There's so much you can draw on this for your game if you uh, if you read it. Plus, seeing where things in Changeling came from, I think a lot of aspects.
0: Yeah. Do you have a favorite arc? I feel like people often have favorite arcs from Sandman. <sighs>
1: I think it's when uh, well, we can't really spoil for something for the yeah. 90s. right? <laughs> it's the death of dream part like that. Mm. I, I, I cried basically. It was so sad. Yeah. He's replaced by his son and stuff like that. It's, it was just, yeah, that yeah. part. Well, and
0: famously, I believe Neil Gaiman made the statement. Someone asked him if you could like describe sandman in one sentence what would it be and he thought about it for a minute and then said the king of dreams learns that he must change or die and makes his choice it's like yeah that pretty much sums it up Mm -hmm. mine is um brief lives because in addition to dream you also have other sort of grand personifications of various aspects of the human experience i guess you could say Mm-hmm. So siblings like Desire and Despair and Delirium, all of whom I think fit very neatly into Changeling games as well, especially Delirium. Mm-hmm. And there is one arc where it's Dream and Delirium go on a road trip, and it's one of my favorite things that's ever been written. <laughs>
1: so, Yeah, I think it was just one comic where they had like a day in the life of death or not quite like she just yes. went around. And- Yes, yes. Yeah, that that's the other thing. Pa- probably my favorite comic in it was that one.
0: Yeah. And there's there are so many spin offs outside of the main Sandman universe. After Sandman ended, or maybe even before it ended, there was a separate series. Is it Sandman Mystery Theater? And then another one called mm-hmm. The Dreaming. And they were just like little mini arcs and one offs. There's connections with The Books of
1: Magic by DC. Yeah. And the whole thing's. Like technically in the DC universe, and there's little side things in that comic universe too. Not as much as you might think. There used to
0: be a website called the Annotated Sandman as well, and I don't know if it still exists mm-hmm. or not. But that was like people would go and and collate all of the references that Gaiman makes in the work. There are so many.
1: Yeah, I got like I was getting these like thick reprinted volumes for uh, my older kid. He was just mm. like, devouring those. So yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Whole bunch came out with a TV show, so they reprinted a bunch. So it's not hard to get a hold of.
0: Yeah, another one of the very few series that I've collected issue by issue is the prequel series Sandman Overture.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I will say, my mom, well dressed up as death, made a do- <laughs> brought a doll of Sandman, the Sandman that she made, and got Neil Gaiman, urgery of Dream that she made, and got Neil Gaiman to sign it at a shop when I was a kid. One of the
0: only times that maybe the only time that I've done a joint Halloween costume was with one of my best friends. We went as Morpheus and Death, and it was a hit. Mm-hmm. Morpheus—that's his other name. He's got so many names. He does. So, I mean, importantly, also there are fairies in the dreaming. So you do meet—you meet, meet Chloricon, a fairy, yep. and Titania, and all of mm-hmm. them, and they all call him Lord Shaper, which I always liked. Mm-hmm. May I share one quote? Yes. Because I think it's a great one. So, there's in that road trip arc, Delirium visits Dream in his castle. And because it's the dreaming, you know, when you sit down at the dinner table, you can get literally anything you want to eat. So, they ask, like, well, you know, what would you like, milady?" And she's like, can I have some little milk chocolate people about three inches tall and filled with raspberry cream? So, that's what she gets. And then as they leave, you get this like close up shot of the little people left on her plate that she hasn't eaten. And so this is the, the line in the box in that panel. Touched by her fingers, the two surviving chocolate people copulate desperately, losing themselves in a melting frenzy of lust, spending the last of their brief borrowed lives in a spasm of raspberry cream and fear.
1: So it's good for dreaming descriptions. Yeah. Then it also helps explain how you can say the cha- that changing the dreaming is part of the world of darkness.
0: Yeah. That oh, and, no, and I mean, the early issues... There's some horrific stuff yeah. in the first two arcs. I mean, yikes! Content warnings
1: all around. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a few things that even Neil Gaiman said he's like, ah, maybe I should have done that a bit differently now. But yeah, it's the edgy '90s or '80s, actually. At the yeah. Okay. So, what's the next book, Puka?
0: Our next series. So the next one is Fables, which is written by Bill Willingham and illustrated by various, but. My favorite among the various is P. Craig Russell, and I just want to give a shout out to P. Craig Russell, who also worked on Sandman and did one of the most famously beautiful issues of that one.
1: It's another DC Comics Vertigo, right? Uh, it's another DC Comics Vertigo. It looks like it is. Yeah.
0: I think it It might be. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. The subtitle is Legends in Exile as well, so gives you a hint. But it's a very straightforward, changelingy concept which is that the characters from fairy tales and folklore many years ago escaped a war against this mysterious adversary because it it at least starts very um, Eurocentric. So they all kind of fled across the Atlantic to the U S and it's all like the characters from Grimm and mother goose and all of those sorts of traditional European rhymes. But they set up this little tiny neighborhood, kind of a a folklore ghetto in New York called fabletown. And I won't give too much away about the meta plot of the series, but it's very much a glamour versus banality kind of thing. They all kind of have to hide out and work jobs to meet ends meet, and they can't let the mortals know that they're there. But at the same time, it's an opportunity for showing how the kind of powers of folklore would manifest in the modern world. So for example, like Sleeping Beauty is a character, and whenever she pricks her finger, everyone around her falls asleep until they get some prince to come kiss her. So the sort of like oaths and Geysa and other sorts of folkloric aspects that Changeling has play really well into that. But a lot of the drama sort of unfolds around that with results that range, I guess, from comical to horrific. The main characters are Snow White, her sister Rose Red, Rose Red's boyfriend Jack, who's jack of the beanstalk and all the other jack the giant killer like the various jacks from legend and then the sheriff of fabletown is bigby wolf who is the big bad wolf and he's like a gruff almost wolverine-ish kind of character prince charming is there and all of his exes get together once a month to like gripe about him so it's snow white cinderella and sleeping beauty all get together because like oh we all hate that ex of ours so yeah it's it's whimsical it's amusing It's been almost adapted to the screen numerous times, but then they just keep making like not quite the same properties. So like they try to adapt it and then Grimm came out and then they try to adapt it again. And then once upon a time came out. So they just keep not quite hitting the mark, but it's, it's Mm -hmm. fun. It's long. He did stop writing it for a while, but now it's back. (laughs) So I think that's why I got through about, like fifty or so issues before I gave up because it got to the point where it was just there was a lot to keep track of and a lot of inherited plot. They did start kind of globe trotting, so like there's an Arabian Nights volume. They go to different fable towns in different parts of the world. So it's like, oh, here's where all of the Chinese folkloric characters escaped to, you know, here's where all of the Americana tall tale characters live. And throughout it all, there's this creeping threat of the adversary who's like, it's hard to tell, at least without giving too much away, whether it's like a Fomorian type threat or a winter type threat or both, you know, banality or dark glamour, unclear. There are spinoffs as well. Jack of Fables has his own spinoff. Cinderella, who's actually like a James Bond super spy, has her own. There's one called Fairest that focuses on the ladies of Fable Town. It's actually really good, I would say, tying it back into Changeling, for depicting like a shadow society of folklore people. So, if you want to run a political intrigue game, here's a good example of how to do it.
1: But yeah, it's decent. That sounds yeah, but uh, I hadn't really heard of that before, so I think I, uh,
0: I would say the only, like the only kind of issue that I would have with it is it raises some questions of cultural appropriation, but very, very incidentally. And I think he Mm -hmm. overall handles it. Okay. Mm -hmm. As opposed to something like wicked and the divine, where the critique of appropriation is actually part of the story. So,
1: Mm -hmm. and that's, that's the kind of thing I guess changeling also runs into where you can't, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, what do you say? These, you only deal with myths from your culture like that. Yeah. that. yeah. You have to, you have to face that. So,
0: yeah. So then next,
1: so yeah, next is also by DC, published by DC Comics, Watchmen.
0: Dun-dun-dun.
1: So this one might at first be like, what? It's a very dark take on superheroes, <laughs> to say the least. It's it's a good how to put it. It's like it's set sort of near the end of a lot like as a lot of the superheroes are older where you know, it gets a very grump or like banality setting in kind of feeling for them. Yeah, it's just, it's set in its own world. It's not part of the DC universe or anything like that. But it's got like these different, like, sort of iconic superheroes and like, you know. Callbacks to the heyday when they were all like the glamorous superheroes or a very like golden age kind of feeling or silver age kind of feeling. But then it's it was written in the eighties and they're very a lot of them have like you've termed up like you know, some of them have killed each other and there's like very dark stuff going on with them. And the ones like even the ones who are like, you know, not necessarily they're all just bad people or whatever. But some of them is just like things, the reality of everything's worn down on them. And there's, you know, the world's sort of turning against them at this point to some degree there. Yeah, I don't know how to explain more about that. But it's, it's uh, he replaced them with changelings. It would be a very interesting Changeling story, but it'd be like one of those with like a lot of history to it for the characters where they were once, you know, a team that worked together and now they're like, things are falling apart. Their personal lives are falling apart. The world's kind of falling apart. Yeah. You can definitely do like associating some of them to a certain kiths. Uh, Definitely some shenanigans going on, you know, an owl. Well, no, he's not, he's an
0: owl or a knocker maybe.
1: Yeah. He's very boggan actually, yeah. That's he's he's the coolest superhero action bog. He's the most action bag I can think of off the top of my head. But did uh, you ever
0: see that yeah. little parody someone made where it was The Watchman as the theme song to an 80s children's cartoon? No. Oh, it's fantastic because it's it's like bouncy and and anyway, it's completely off-tone, which is what makes it great.
1: Yep. But it's also like, like Changeling has a lot of that too. We're both in your own life and looking back on before the shattering or something like looking back to a much better time and it was, everything was more bright and mm-hmm. simpler in some ways. And now the banality is sort of dragging everybody down.
0: Yeah, We should also mention that it was written by Alan Moore, who along with Neil Gaiman is kind of the giant of eighties comics from Britain, at least maybe Chris Claremont as well in the mainstream side.
1: Into 90s too, yeah, I'd say.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Well, starting in the 80s. Well, anyway. Um, But something with Alan Moore's work is he very often, I I think, shows how the same processes unfold over different time periods and then connect with each other. So you see that with works like League Mm -hmm. of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Voice of the Fire, maybe other stuff of his that I haven't read. And I think that's, an interesting point of relevance for changeling is to think about like the generational conflict. I think it makes good inspiration for a story about changelings having kind of generational conflict around how they conceptualize their own place in the world with respect to things like glamor and banality. Because we have that between sealy and unseely or shadow court and not shadow court. But it's interesting to think about it. It's not as simplistic as like childling, wild or grump. But more about how do the changelings who awakened in the '70s think of themselves different than the ones who awakened in the '90s, and so forth.
1: Hmm. Oh yeah, especially since some changelings don't age as fast as others for various reasons. Right. So yeah. Right. 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 So you have like twenty-year-olds from the '70s interacting with twenty-year-olds from twenty-twenties. Yeah.
0: Oh uh, someone pointed out to me that American Girl dolls just released their two new characters who are 90s characters. I'm like, ah. Oh. <laughs> we have officially become history. Yeah. So speaking of generational conflict, I'd like to talk about Jimmy Corrigan, the smartest kid on earth. Um so this is a graphic novel by Chris Ware. It is one of the best representations of modern banality that's out there probably it has very little to do with the fae or fantasy or changelings, but it is a really harrowing and exemplary depiction of loneliness, social anxiety, sort of the isolation of living alone in the city, the transference of trauma between generations to kind of flip that previous point a little bit, but it also has elements of like clinging to fantasy life and, happy memories and childhood wonder and kind of foolish optimism in the face of that. So I do think there is some changeling thematic connection there, even though he certainly never goes to the dreaming or anything. The general plot is that Mm -hmm. he's this kind of schlubby guy with nothing going on in his life. He works this dead-end job. He lives alone. He doesn't really have friends. And then there's a catalyzing incident and he decides to meet his father for the first time. And that's kind of the primary plot point. It's set in, I think, Chicago, but it kind of moves around this very drably depicted Midwest. And it alternates with flashbacks to, I think, his grandfather as a child who used to tell these stories of like the 1893 World's Expo in Chicago. So again, you have that like childhood wonder, but then showing the death of the dream basically from generation to generation. So that's like thematically, it's really harrowing artistically, it's fascinating and beautiful. Chris Ware does really intricate things with panels and art styles and the use of like different media. There's um, pages that look like those old kind of mail order forms that you would find at the back of pulp magazines, things like that. And it's very precisely drawn, lots of attention to detail. And there are scenes with like So full disclosure, I taught a course on graphic novels last year, and this was one of the ones we read. So I have deep and abiding feelings about it. But one of the things that I talked about with my class was how whenever Jimmy Corrigan encounters like an overbearing character that he doesn't want to be around, their face is never shown. Only the people that he like cares about have their faces depicted, which I thought was a really interesting artistic choice. And there's like attention to handwriting and mechanisms and little tiny elements of decoration in a room, things like that. There'll be shifts from panel to panel that kind of cross from one point in time to another, so it has that kind of filmic aspect to it. It's really interestingly constructed. I would say it's almost, aside from its ties to representing banality, it would be a cool exercise to try and construct a plot for a game kind of along the lines that the graphic novel has. It's a reminder that although characters in World of Darkness, the player characters are actually monsters, in Changeling, at least, Autumn people are villains too. Humans are villains. Mm-hmm. And this book is full of autumn people. So
1: I wonder if it'd make a good um one of those quests they have in C20 mm. at least, of like trying to like help someone, <laughs>
0: basically. Who's... Yeah. It's like, here's someone at banality nine. What do you do?
1: (laughs) Yep. Yeah. But it sounds like he has a good potential for being a dreamer. Maybe. Maybe. It's, It's like that last little
0: ounce that still remains in him. It's like, does that get squeezed out? And Chris Ware's work, a lot of it kind of has that intricacy to it. You have to really sit with it for a while to unpack it. People have also commented that Jimmy Corrigan bears an uncanny resemblance to Stewie Griffin. Mm-hmm. And people accused Seth MacFarlane of kind of stealing his look from this comic. But supposedly it wasn't true.
1: Mm. Anyway. Uh, next, we do a bit of a pivot to the X-Men. The uncanny X-Men. I don't There's too many X-Men. But <laughs> <laughs> That's for our cartoon episode. Yes. We to do Which like. will happen. <laughs> We'll have to include all the X-Men cartoons. is just one. Yeah, so it's a very long-spanning set of series of comic books. One of the Marvel staples. Lots of spinoffs. I'm not sure if you would have never heard of it <laughs> there. But to give an idea for Changeling inspirations, okay, there's a, f- there's a few aspects. One is the way it talks about people who are othered by society as an analogy also works well with Changeling's being that way. And banality and things like that ties into a lot of stuff around what would be called now microaggressions and all sorts of stuff like that as like a metaphor for there. But there's also the whole mutants in this setting. They go through a something kind of analogous to the chrysalis where there's like they go through mm-hmm. and everything gets all strange and their powers start manifesting in weird ways. And that feels a lot like the dream dance or going through the chrysalis there. Mm-hmm. So... That there. And then, you know, of, of anything, whether you have big spanning, there's a lot to draw from story-wise, a lot to draw from character-wise. Professor Xavier and Magneto are totally like she of two different houses fighting over stuff. Like, it's... <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which houses are they, do you think?
1: I mean, okay. So, Xavier... Uh, I don't think he's Gwydion Like, you normally go, oh... I'd,
0: I'd peg him for a Liam.
1: Yeah, I was thinking Liam makes sense. With he might of, actually be Dougal. I was going to say, hints of Dougal, yeah. I'd possibly, yield, Mag- like, anyway, yeah. Magneto's, he's unsealy, but I don't know which unsealy house. It depends on the portrayal, I think. Maybe,
0: like, maybe Aeson or Varric? Varic? Varich? Yeah. Because, well, I mean, he certainly believes in mutant superiority to a degree. So
1: Yeah, the Aeson, he might not, he feels a little bit almost, oh, was it Darien? A little bit? Maybe. Maybe. I wouldn't say Verich because he's not that cold, right? He has calculating.
0: It depends who's writing him. Yeah. Like, Grant Morrison's Magneto is absolutely that cold and calculating Mm -hmm. for whether or not one supports. Actually, can I mention here as a sidebar? We had a question on the Discord, or not a question, a comment. Ferret had recommended Grant Morrison's comics as a changeling source and. Grant Morrison did do a run on the X-Men, which is one of my favorite arcs. But overall, Grant Morrison's comics in general, I think, are better for Mage. His run on the X-Men, though, something he tapped into that I really like about the series as a whole is when they focus on the subcultures that would arise uh, from that context. And Morrison really dived into that, like really showed mutants have their own celebrities and their own slang and their own expectations of practices in
1: the same way that changelings do mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and there's like yeah there's there's i mean if you talk about marvel and as a whole there's all sorts of little side things and anything by jack i think jack kirby was involved with this like both changeling and mage like it's and then we might reference stanley at the original like just everything stanley did too yeah yeah anyway yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah so the x-men yeah there's a lot to draw from there for changeling
0: There are so many X-books, though. It's like you can find anything you need in the
1: X-universe. Yeah, Alpha Flight is a change (laughs) on X-book.
0: So next, another former X-Men author, Marjorie Liu, created a series, I think after she finished her run, called Monstrous, illustrated by Sana Takeda. I think it's 40, yes, let me check my notes here, 42 issues so far. I've only read actually the first couple of volumes, but I love it. So, this is a very dark, very, very dark. If Sandman needed content warnings, Monstrous needs like a whole bucketful. But it's an, a dark epic fantasy set in an early 20th century Asia inspired world. Very intense world building. Uh, she really makes the world feel lived in and drops you right into it. And the art by Sanatakeda Takeda is very maximalist, almost like art deco. It's inspired by traditional Japanese art, but then has all of these kind of elaborate flourishes and like not work details and architectural things. The themes it handles. So the, the overall plot is that there's this long ongoing war between the humans and the arcanics. And the arcanics are this very diverse bunch of magical creatures. You could basically look at them as the range of changeling kiths they all have different powers and different kinds of ways of expressing their magic and because it is a brutal war themed comic it deals with you know violence of many kinds violence including sexual including mutilation it deals with slavery it deals with violence against children and racism it is not for the faint of heart i cannot stress enough how how heavy this read is At the same time, there are characters in it who are very, like, kawaii and chibi, and it's a very unsettling juxtaposition, which I think is intentional on their part.
1: That's very changeling in my mind.
0: Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It follows this one protagonist. The protagonist is named Micah, who is uh, an arcanic, but more than what she seems. And there's kind of like a, a Miyazaki connection because she has a demon arm, like in Princess Mononoke. She makes for an interesting changeling template, I think, because there's this aspect of self-horror to return to our episode from October on that topic where, you know, she herself is disturbed by what she is. But then when the shit hits the fan, she is more than willing to do what's necessary to protect the people around her. So like her her sidekick is this little kind of like bouncy, I guess, fox puka childling is the best way to describe them who she looks out for. And so it's about their journey to like, get back home. And anyway, I also like how it is a firm rebuttal to the idea that comics are not for women, because it is written by a woman, it is drawn by a woman, and probably 90% of the characters from the worst of the villains to the noblest of heroes to the most random of side characters are all code as female. So I really like that they very intentionally did that, even though it is very bloody and gruesome and twisted in that sense
1: so yeah makes me want to makes me want to ask my mom if she's read that she's (laughs) it's funny you're saying that because like that's who i think of in my life of like oh comic person that's my mother she's the one who's super into comics and like that's a but yeah
0: there you go perhaps a perhaps a gift
1: unless she already has it (laughs) okay yeah it's very um
0: it is a dark glamour read most definitely Mm -hmm. so and
1: then and that takes us into something actually aimed at children, although not exclusively at all, was the, and was is very much the operative word here, comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, which has been brought to various collections. We've touched on this in our, you know, one of the previous episodes and we brought up a bit, but uh, it definitely falls under this category here under this episode. It's set in, the, it was back in the, from 85 to 1985 to 1995, about a six-year-old boy named Calvin and his stuffed tiger slash really chimerical companion tiger named Hobbes and their adventures and his imaginary. I mean, when I say chimerical companion that's what it'd be in changeling terms. And it's just him going through mm-hmm. life, but through like a very, you know, juxtaposed of the mortal seeming versus faming <laughs> life of things. Not that he necessarily looks different. And it's just him going on living through life and turning it into an adventure. And you know, viewing things from sort of an imagination perspective, jumping to when jumping back to like the real life perspective. And it just, it's great. And I think it's another great changeling inspiration. Yeah. And it helps me conceive of how I'd think of chimerical reality in the autumn world. To be on top of everything else. Yeah,
0: definitely. Definitely a strong dreamer, if not Kithane.
1: Yeah. I I keep having this idea of wanting to like do more things of that line on on my like, Mm two dozen storyteller supplement i've even written that yet as an idea but something around not kinane but like dreamers in the dreaming but yeah
0: he's also a really good example of like the precocious childling in the sense that he uses words and discusses topics that no six-year-old would except for like genius level ones but then he also yeah. there are entire
1: strips of him practicing his belches so like yeah he reminds me of one of my kids when he was actually both of my kids a little bit when they were six, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> Me and my siblings, I mean we all just growing up, we just even to this day, we can all just quote it at each other and have an entire conversation mm-hmm. in Calvin and Hobbes quotes. And it's like near mm-hmm. and dear to our hearts. But Yep. Yeah. So then there's Saga, written by Brian K. Vaughan, illustrated by Fiona Staples, recently back from a several years hiatus. They did 54 issues for the first half of the series, then took like a five-year break, and now they're back for another 54 issues, so people are stoked about that. Much like Monstrous, the backdrop is a war story. But unlike Monstrous, which is more gritty, steampunky mixed with Stark Fantasy, Saga is all out space opera, postmodern space opera. <laughs> the basic plot is that there's this world called landfall inhabited by a race of winged aliens and their moon wreath which has their horned counterparts so i guess you could have i don't know she and satyrs or something and the ones from wreath can cast magic by speaking esperanto which i always liked the interesting thing is that because the two celestial bodies the planet and the moon it's like to destroy one would cause the other one to like know, gravitationally or whatever also be destroyed. They've outsourced their war to other worlds. So their war has kind of spread to other planets in the galaxy. It's been called Star Wars meets Game of Thrones. So that's kind of the the feel of the plot. But anyway, uh, Alana and Marco were soldiers from the opposing sides, met and fell unexpectedly in love, and had a daughter who has wings and horns. And so because her existence would be like a catastrophe for both sides, the powers that be in the war are after them with hired assassins and all of these other people. So they're like constantly on the run. And like Monstrous, it pushes a lot of boundaries around violence, around sexuality, racism, politics, social issues. There is a very strong aristocratic element, which I think works well as like a noble commoner analog for Changeling. But it's overall a really good example of how fantasy and sci-fi can address real world issues in a variety of ways, ranging from humorous to dramatic to horrific again, though sometimes a little more heavy handed than others. A lot of the material might be triggering for people, but it has excellent queer representation It's very upfront about its kind of politics. And the characters are just like so inventive sometimes. (laughs) One of the the best known is Lying Cat, who's like now a plush toy and you can get like little figurines and everything. And she's this big sort of Egyptian style blue cat that when someone lies, she goes, lying. And that's the only word she says and makes people (laughs) self-conscious. The art is like, Again, I keep comparing it to monstrous. Monstrous, even though it's very like intricately beautiful, is overall a very dark palette. Saga is like if you took an entire twenty-four pot set of Dayglow poster paint and just emptied it onto the page. Nice. It's a rainbow on every panel. So yeah, it is epic as the as the name implies. It's won a whole wheelbarrow full of awards, and aside from all of its kind of thematic connections to changeling, I think it's a really good. Because the sort of narrator is Hazel reminiscing, and you you get to watch her grow up from an infant to a child over the course of the series and see how the experience of life on the run and in hiding shapes her growing up. And I think there's a changeling story to be told in there. So character wise, I think it's pretty good. Lots of attention to family too, I should also mention. Important for changeling which might come up again in our upcoming queerness and kinship episode. Yeah.
1: Foreshadowing. Have you read Saga? Uh, no, I haven't. I've never heard of that. That's one of the ones I haven't heard of at all. Okay. It's quite good. I recommend. Yeah. So way back in time in the other direction, <laughs> I don't know when comic scripts started, but this feels early for it. Yeah. Um,
0: Not long before this one.
1: Yeah. This is one you can get legally without at least most of it, I think at this point. Public domain. Yeah, it's Little Nemo in the Land of Slumberland. It was technically a character in an even earlier series, but it was a stranger one that we're not really getting into. And then it was renamed in the Land of Wonderful Dreams for a while, and then it came back to Little Nemo in the Land of Slumberland, going from 1905 to 1927. It's about a boy named Nemo, who I've not read all of the strips for it. Who every time in the last panel he wakes up, but the ones are just about his adventures in Dreamland. And apparently the first one begins with a command from King Morpheus of Slumberland hey. to be get collected by a minion. It has actually needs content warnings because it's so far back that <laughs> some of the stuff's a bit racist yeah. depictions. But uh Yeah, so again once go getting the whole dreamers need rules in changeling i think more or dream not dreamers and dreamers in the you get glamour from necessarily but humans involved in the dreaming somehow yeah and it's just adventures he goes on in the dreaming or in slumberland which is dreaming this this definitely influenced sandman for instance and definitely influenced a lot of things that influence changeling i can't say for certain and
0: calvin and Hobbes.
1: and calvin hobbs yeah i can't say that like it directly influenced changing the dream or not we'd have to ask that but uh yeah it's it's amazing stuff for these you know just short not that many panels each strip episodic kind of but amazing
0: it also points to back when like newspaper comic strips were a visual art form and i know Mm -hmm. uh, bill watterson who created calvin and Hobbes, has talked about his sort of chafing under the restrictions of the comic syndicates who were like you have to do four panels of the same size and you know, fighting yeah. against that, refusing to license his work. And I think a lot of that can be traced back to the early days of newspapers when like a little Nemo strip might take up an entire page in full color with panels of varying sizes and like characters leaping across the page and everything.
1: That reminds me, did we talk about In the Night Kitchen before? when we did think. This is also, not just to get inspired in Norton But yeah, it's also great to just be like, oh, you want ideas for Realms of the Dreaming? read a few strips of this. Yeah. <laughs> like if he went through some, tape the visually and they'll turn it into something.
0: Yeah. It's very, in terms of being of its time, it kind of reflects the, in my mind, kind of the art deco era of New York. Like it just has that
1: mm-hmm.
0: same kind of detail. I don't know. It's gorgeous. And there are allusions to it that pop up everywhere. There's an early Sandman issue actually that has little Nemo references worked into it like directly. Yeah. I have a, a bonus one. I know we said 10, but I have an 11th to throw in.
1: Mm-hmm. What's the 11th?
0: So this is Suburban Glamour, which is a mini series. so only four issues, uh, written and drawn by Jamie McKelvey, who with will later go on to a title like do.
1: that, how could it have anything to do with Changeling? Right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a reach, but I felt I had to include it. So yeah, it is probably the most directly Changeling-ish comic work I could think of. But the basic plot is that two teenage friends in the UK start finding, like, strange things happening around them, such as chimeras stopping by for a visit and fae beings turning up to chase them in the playground and all of that. I won't give away exactly what happens, but I will say that from a canane or Enchanted point of view about what glamour and banality would look like, it's pretty great. It's not the wildest w- entry on this list or even the most robust of the comics. Part of that is due to its brevity, like there's a lot of exposition in the dialogue because there just has to be, because there's only four issues to tell an entire story. But I think it's very solidly aligned with Changeling. It's a good take on Wilders, certainly, and also some of the uh, protocol stuff that the She are so fond of, but everyone else is kind of rolling their eyes. It made me think about the difference between how British and American writers in particular, because Again, another stream of comics we didn't explore for this episode are comics from other language traditions. But with the UK versus the US, when presenting fairy stuff, I think the former probably has more just inherited common lore that will be understood by the reader. I don't know. I feel like when you look at fables, it really speaks to the American audience. It's a very Disney kind of approach to fairy tales and folklore. Whereas when you read some of the British stuff, like if you look at Sandman, Neil Gaiman makes references to things that I don't think ever made it across the Atlantic until Sandman. But um, I,
1: I think there's a difference there, too, where someone like Neil, a lot of other people outside the U.S. will be willing to make references to things that maybe they don't think their a lot of their readership would necessarily know the reference. That's true.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go look at an encyclopedia, kid.
1: Mm hmm. That's true. Although these days, my kids, the amount of this kind of knowledge they have kind of shocks me. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh yeah, I saw a YouTube video on that. I'm like, okay. Well, listen, I was perfectly happy
0: to sit in the library in sixth grade reading Catherine mm-hmm. Briggs's Encyclopedia of Fairies and Folklore, or whatever it's yeah. called. I forget the name. I tend to stick to just Funkin' Wagnalls, <laughs> or whatever. Or
1: that. I can't remember.
0: Anyway, so Suburban Glamour. I used to as the splash image for the episode channel on the Discord, because... I think it sums it up. Those are all the ones that I have in-depth notes on. There are others that I considered, but
1: yeah, I and agree. others that
0: I'd like to read that I kind of vaguely know about but don't have any knowledge of. So
1: yeah, I think that's part of why we didn't touch on manga. There's, there's no doubt. Yeah, so many, but I don't I haven't read most of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are a couple that I have read, which I thought about and was like, yeah, I could make this work, but mm-hmm. I'd really have to go back. The ones that I've talked about this evening are ones that I really don't have to. I can just riff off the top of my head, like, yeah, it's about this and it has this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, one that I really like to read is the Mythology Class by Arnold Are, who's from the Philippines. That work engages with Philippine folklore, and it sounds really good, so I want to read it. <laughs> like the mythological creatures of the Philippines are featured, so I'd like to read that one.
1: Anyways, so yeah, that uh, I guess that brings it that's up to wrap. So yeah you can you can find us a uh, website changelingthepodcast.com you can send us a tweet at changelingpod at dice.camp you can email us podcast at changelingthepodcast.com you can f- follow us on facebook at um, podcast. you can go to our discord at discord.me slash ctp yep. i don't know why that never sticks in my head <laughs> it will oh, the it will. are getting it And all of the links
0: mentioned will be available in the show notes to this episode.
1: Yeah. And uh, once again, I've been Josh and I continue to remain Puga. If you find yourself trapped in the dreaming, you'll wake up at the last panel and don't let the
0: syndicate, whether it's a mage group or a comics collective, tell you what to do. Think for yourself, break that fourth wall. In our efforts to involve the community at large, we tried to put together a focus group for this episode, recruiting through a flyer that asked for, quote, thoughts on the consumption of comics. When six bright-eyed red-capped childlings turned up, we figured, sure, they know comics. After all, it's a well-known fact that the medium leads to juvenile delinquency, and who could be more delinquent than the quintessential Hunger fay? We realized our mistake pretty quickly, however, as the Red Caps, of course, interpreted our use of the term consumption literally, devouring two whole boxes of Marvel and six of DC so they could give us their feedback. Apparently, Deadpool has an oaky finish, the Books of Magic have notes of Pomelo, and Green Arrow caused severe stomach cramps. In future, we'll stick with our usual methods of engagement through the social media links listed in this episode's show notes, one of which is our Patreon. We'd be grateful if you would consider stopping by www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast to help us keep bringing you our mishmash of Fae-flavored content. Our patrons include Derek, Dorchadas, Jason Vines, Oreo, Roskabooz, Sanjigger, Sija, and Terry Robinson. You can also support us by leaving a review on the podcast listening platform of your choice and spreading the word about us to your teammates, arch-nemeses, and background characters. Thanks bunches for giving us a listen, and until next time, Excelsior!